Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and our last special episode for this holiday season. In addition to COVID-19 and the economic crisis, Foreign policy will be another big challenge for the new administration, and nobody outside the administration will be more helpful than former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Even without her official role at the State Department, Secretary Albright remains active in world affairs, head of her own group of former heads of state and foreign ministers, and foreign policy advisor to both former President Barack Obama and incoming President Joe Biden. This year, she also published another book about her experience as the United States' first female Secretary of State, appropriately called Hell and Other Destinations. A few months ago, Secretary Albright joined me at Washington's Hill Center to discuss her new book and many of the foreign policy challenges facing the country today, all of which, by the way, remain unresolved and all of which will be a top priority for President Joe Biden and his Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. I was so impressed with Madeleine Albright's insights on America's proper role in the world, I thought it would be worth sharing them with you on this podcast. Madam Secretary, it's good to see you again. Congratulations to the new book, Hell and Other Destinations, uh, which I very, very much enjoyed. Congratulations. Uh, uh, and, you know, I'm just, this book is different uh, than your other books. I've read uh, two or three of your other books, interviewed you interviewed you about a couple of them. You know, in this one, you really kind of let your hair down. Tell, yeah. <laughs> tell a lot of great stories, uh, kind of bouncing around uh, all over. Uh, it must have been it's fun for you to write. Well, it was. And the reason I decided to write it is that, and I kind of say it right up front, People ask me how I want to be remembered, and I say, I don't want to be remembered. I'm still here. <laughs> but as I try to explain to people what I'm doing now and why I'm doing all the different things, um, it does try to explain what I'm doing and how they knit together um, and how. And, and I've also said, and you've heard me say this, is that I always think that what I need to be doing at the moment should be more interesting than what I did before. Not easy if you've been Secretary of State. but. I really um, have, am doing a lot of interesting things and I try to relate how they go together. And then I tell stories about the things that have happened to me and um, it surprises people that I actually have a sense of humor. So um, I have to try that out. <laughs> well, you know, I thought I knew you pretty well uh, and I follow you pretty well, but I was just blown away by how many things you are involved in. There is hardly a board or commission on the face of the planet <laughs> that you have not either founded or you're on the board of or um, the head of. I mean, did you ever learn to say no? No, I, I can't say no. That's not my thing, which is actually why I'm having such a terrible time now because I'm an extrovert 
and I've here been under house arrest and I'm trying <laughs> to learn to be an introvert and uh, I'm finding that hard. But the whole thing really did begin as we were leaving um, the State Department and people were saying, well, uh, are you going to go back to teaching or um, are you going to give speeches or are you going to write a book or what about the National Democratic Institute that you've loved so much? And how about starting a business? And I said, fine, all of them. And that I, I wouldn't choose. And and as it, I really do believe this, um, Bill, is that they go together and what I do in one place informs another. And so I, uh, I like doing what I'm doing. They all do uh, fit together. Now, you know, uh, we all learned, those of us who um, sort of do this for a living, uh, that Part of the price of talking about our new book is that we always are asked questions about the news of the day. So I want to get circled back to the book. Okay. And stories. But let's start with a little bit. How would you assess the state of American foreign policy today under after almost four years of Donald Trump? I think it's a mess. That's a diplomatic term of art. <laughs> um, and. Uh, I am just uh, getting ready to teach in the fall semester, and I teach about, I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. So what are the tools? And I teach this course called the National Security Toolbox, and I've done it ever since I left office. And I basically am sitting here, Bill, thinking about how I'm going to teach it this semester. It'll be virtual, but I do think that um, this is not the America that I know um, or the one that I represented. Um, because the United States is, is AWOL in an awful lot of places. We're not playing the role that uh, I believe we should. Um, you know, President Clinton was the first one who said we were the indispensable nation. It's just that I said it so often, it became identified with me. But there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. Uh, it's being a partner and being engaged, and we're certainly not doing that. So I am very troubled by uh, where our foreign policy is and America's role in the world at the moment. Uh, and we know we've talked about this because you have this group of former foreign ministers, uh, heads of state like yourself. Uh, what do they tell you? And you're in touch with them and you meet often. What do they tell you about uh, the, America's leadership today? Well, we see each other <clears throat> virtually now a number of times and, and they basically are surprised, wondering where we are and why we're not more involved. And by the way, I was at a meeting in March, uh, uh, before this all started really, um, at the Munich Security Conference where I've gone a number of years and where there are a number of former foreign ministers and a number of, of other um, dignitaries. And uh, Pompeo and Esper spoke and they were like uh, from outer space. That It didn't really mm. make any sense to what the other people had been saying about the responsibilities of the system, what's happening to NATO, um, how we need to relate each other on the economy and how we deal with cyber, for instance. I mean, just very, mostly they were so focused on uh, how important the United States was. And how would you say, or how would you again assess specifically our relationship with Russia? Well, I think uh, a, a mixed bag, frankly. I mean, I do think that um, Trump and Putin do have some kind of a special relationship um, and they do talk to each other. Um, it's hard to know from the outside what they really talk about. I do think that we are, um, as a country, concerned about the kinds of things that the Russians are doing um, 
by uh, really trying to separate us from our friends and allies in Europe um, and what they're doing in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. where they are systematically, um, as we prepare to leave, they are systematically exerting their influence there. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not, the thing that's hard for me, Bill, is I don't know what are the kinds of things that there's some agreement on um, that is taking place, whether there are really diplomats trying to work some things out or whether it's all kind of ad hoc. So um, from the outside, it looks like kind of a, a um, hit or miss relationship uh, where the Russians are actually trying to um, undermine what we're doing. And when I read the national security strategy, which by the way, the Trump administration put out earlier than most, but they did see Russia and China and Iran and North Korea as the major threats, but certainly um, Russia and China. Do you see a relationship today with China? It seems to be hot or cold, uh, equally murky to read. I think it's very hard. The only thing that I just see is that it's about as bad as we've ever um, publicly seen. There's always, by the way, um, there's always something negative about China in our presidential campaigns. But I don't think I've ever seen things as uh, genuinely unpleasant as they are now. Um, obviously, with the blaming for the virus and then things that the Chinese are doing in the South and East China Sea, um, the other things that they're doing through their very large Belt and Road Initiative. I keep saying the Chinese must be getting very fat because the Belt keeps getting larger and larger. But I do think that the relationship is particularly bad at this moment. Right. Can we recover? And how long would it take? I do think we can recover. The thing that's interesting about statecraft is that you have to try to look for things in which you can cooperate with a country and those where you're not going to compromise and that um, there is really uh, a struggle of some kind uh, where you can't cooperate, where you're competing. And I do think what has happened, though, is that as we have ceded uh, place, the Chinese are taking up um, the area uh, in many different ways, some physical and some kind of what's happening with the World Health Organization, for instance, as we've decided to pull out, they are um, acting more and more. So they are taking up the, the vacuum space. Uh, but I do think that we can and should cooperate with them on climate change um, and also on trying to sort out uh, some of the issues that are there internationally. But we will compete in terms of what they're doing in the South and East China Sea and for navigation rights and trying to figure out um, how we operate together. So, but that is statecraft. Are you in touch with Joe Biden or his uh, top advisors? I, I am, yes. I've been friends with Joe Biden for a long time um, when he was in the Senate and I was in office, he was so uh, unbelievably, truly supportive and helpful of foreign policy, really has a very deep understanding of it. And what I really like about him, um, among other things, is his understanding of how domestic and foreign policy go together, which is something, whether you're in the executive or legislative branch, that's important in terms of how our policies are thought up and then how they're carried out. And so um, I have been in touch with him. What would you what what would you expect to see, or what should we expect to see, day one, the new Joe Biden administration? Well, I think he's he has said some things where 
um, he's really going to come out with an economic plan that he really wants to care to do something strongly about that. Uh, that he does think that um, there has been a whole group of people that have been left out of the burgeoning economy and health programs and education. I think also um, that he will uh, he will certainly get a congratulatory phone calls from the foreign leaders, many of whom he really knows well because he dealt with them. Um, and that they will establish relationships. Um, and I'm hoping that he will make, and there's every reason to think this, is that he will understand the importance of a partnership internationally, which is uh, good for the American people um, as we deal with international problems. And really, I hope that he will uh, really uh, refurbish our image and work with other countries for our good. That's what the President of the United States is supposed to protect our people, our territory, and our way of life. And that requires partnership with other countries. And that is something that Joe Biden knows how to do very, very well. Paris Climate Accords? It's hard to resurrect it completely, but he clearly understands the importance of climate change and uh, how it affects the populations and our industries and everything. So I, I think that he truly um, is probably the most knowledgeable person to be ready to become president of the United States when you think about the various things that he's done in his life. And the Iran nuclear accord, is it possible to resurrect that, to restart it? Well, I think that it has to be looked at again. I'm very troubled by the things that have happened um, in the last couple of months where uh, it's evident that the Iranians are in fact doing something to uh, restore their enrichment capabilities. Um, and where there is action or non-action in the Security Council trying to figure out what to do about the sanctions. But I think one of the huge mistakes uh, by the Trump administration was pulling out unilaterally from that agreement um, and the way that it not only affected us, but our allies and obviously um, the whole situation in the Middle East. Uh, and finally, a little lightning round of your response to some people who are on the world stage today. Um, just a couple of comments about each, if you, um, if you uh, agree. Uh, let's start with um, Secretary of State Pompeo. How do you rate the job he's doing? I think a little mixed, frankly. Um, I have not talked to him at all, except for the first day um, when I congratulated him. And he fired you from some well, advice? He fired me from, I was on the CIA external advisory board that Leon Panetta had asked me to be on. And then he also, I was kept by uh, Petraeus and Brennan and everybody, uh, and it wasn't until all of a sudden I got a call from Pompeo. Um, but I, I think that part of the problem is that there needs to be some predictability in our um, foreign policy. And I think Trump makes it hard for the Secretary of State to be predictable and at the same time um, to have a functioning relationship. But the kinds of things that have been happening I think do not speak really well for the um, the kind of um, uh, really organized kind of national security policy that one would like to see. How about Bibi Netanyahu? Very difficult person um, and somebody that I used to have to keep telling President Clinton just because he sounds like an American. Um, he is not an American political person and we treat him as if he were in many ways. I think that uh, I did not enjoy working with him, I have to say. 
and I'm very troubled by some of the things that are going on. I'm a great supporter of Israel, uh, but I do think that I'm worried about the annexation uh, program or plan um, and, um, and just the way that he treats um, the neighbors. What problem, what was his problem with Obama? I, you know, I was covering the White House, I couldn't understand. It, it seemed to me that Obama was giving him everything he wanted and he just gave Obama nothing but grief. I, I have no idea, you know, uh, but I really, I found him a very difficult person to deal with. Um, here's another person you're closer to. How about your take on Susan Rice? Well, Susan Rice, I have known since she was a little girl. Um, she went to, first of all, I was really good friends with her mother, um, Lois Rice, because um, uh, we did a lot of things together. And actually, um, Susan is in age between my oldest, my twins and my youngest daughter. And we all used to, and my former husband played tennis with her father, and we mm -hmm. spent a lot of time together. So I have known Susan for a very long time. I think uh, she is an incredibly capable person. Um, officially, we kind of, you know, she was in the White House um, uh, in the Na National Security Council staff uh, for President Clinton. And then when I was in office, um, she was Assistant Secretary for African Affairs. She was terrific in that. And, um, and she is really, really smart and um, a very um, capable human being. Who is the leader of the free world today? And that's a hard question. I actually think probably Angela Merkel. Um, in so many ways, in the way she thinks. And um, she is steady. Um, she um, works well with others. They're about to, they are president of the G7 at the moment. Um, and, and I think she's, a, she's a, um, a really very careful and smart political person. And I'm sorry that she's decided that she's not going to stay in office for more than a year. When you look around the world today, Madam Secretary, is there what what do you see as the greatest threat from the foreign policy point of view to the United States today? The greatest threat is uh, in many ways our behavior, if I may say so. And I've said that. But I do think our kind of what the whole issue is um, on intelligence as a whole, uh, how, um, you know, hacking the various technology, uh, cyber weapons. Um, how side that, <clears throat> that we have really no rules for uh, the, um, the whole intelligence sector and the trading of information, and then also how cyber works. We're having a lot of trouble at the moment even getting normal arms control agreements. Uh, but I think that the whole issue of cyber, the offense and the defense, uh, and understanding uh, how artificial intelligence uh, does work, will work, who penetrates whose country, all those kinds of aspects in terms of uh, that know no borders. I also do think that the virus and um, what it has done um, in not only in terms of health, but kind of making clear that we don't have good systems to try to deal with something that knows no borders. And how would you rate, finally, the, the response of the United States to the coronavirus pandemic? to what some of our uh, other countries, particularly our allies, have done? Well, I think we've screwed up. Um, I mean, I am so tired of um, the president taking credit for the best whatever. It's the worst country now in terms of what the number of cases, um, the disagreements in terms of what the guidelines are, 
trying to figure out how the governments relate to the people and the economy. Um, and there are other countries that have done very well. Uh, by the way, what's interesting, some of the countries that really have done well um, are the ones that are run by women. Um, so New Zealand and Taiwan, Germany, uh, uh, Denmark, Norway, Iceland. Um, I think that's uh, they all have women leaders. Is there any part of the world you haven't been to? I've pretty much been everywhere. I have. I lost count of the number of countries. Um, and when I was out of office, I actually went to the Arctic um, on a trip that Aspen and National Geographic uh, uh, sponsored. Uh, I haven't been to the Antarctic, um, but I have been in an awful lot of places. During this holiday season, we salute America's labor unions and especially those unions who are sponsors of the Bill Press Pod. So to our sponsors, the great hardworking men and women of the Laborers Union, the Teamsters, the United Food and Commercial Workers, the Smart Union, the Iron Workers, the American Federation of Teachers, and the Steel Workers, we say thank you. Thank you for fighting for American workers. Thank you for keeping America strong. And thank you for your support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. So again, the book, Hell and Other Destinations, recounts a lot of the activities that you're involved in, a lot of the, um, including public speaking, including writing books, including going on book tours. Um, you learned early on that as an author, you're not always in control of how and when you are scheduled to speak at book conferences, like the very one of the first ones you went to with Madam Secretary. 
uh, in Arizona at a booksellers conference. Do you remember that? Story? Oh yes, when I came, I was asked to speak after somebody talked about um, how to pee. You know, so. <laughs> a kids book, right? Kids book, and then I did compare foreign policy a little bit to dealing with children. <laughs> little toilet training. <laughs> a little toilet training going a long way. Yeah. Right? Uh, you also tell us about your experience when you were and accepted a position on the New York Stock Exchange of all places. Well, I, I write about it because it is one of the things where um, saying yes was a mistake. Um, what happened was that I uh, was out of office. I had a friend who was a member of the Stock Exchange and he went to Dick Grasso to suggest me. So Dick Grasso, who was the CEO, called me up and he said, um, um, you know, come up and see me. So I went, I did ring the bell, but then he said that uh, his democratic slots were already taken, which I thought was kind of weird. <clears throat> and then there was an article about how high his pay was. So all of a sudden I get a phone call saying that he changed his mind and he thought he might want me on the stock exchange. And I said, well, maybe I've changed my mind. <clears throat> so then I decided to call uh, Senator Sarbanes, who had really taken an interest in uh, what were the right things to do. And he said, no, it'd be good, Madeline, if you did it, because it could be part of your public service. So the story that really blew my mind was, and I write about this, is I always try to be at meetings in person, but uh, the scheduling was hard. And so I was at a meeting um, that was part of the, <clears throat> the governance committee. And um, there was kind of a semi-open hearing with some members of the stock exchange, and I'm on the phone. And this man says, we don't need some former secretary of state, some St. Francis of Assisi on this board. And I said, excuse me, but I'm on the phone. And he said, well, that's perfectly fine, Madam Secretary, because as far as I know, you have no financial experience. And I said, well, that may be true, but I have solved a few problems. And then somebody else around the table said, and she can learn. And the same man said, yeah, and you can teach a monkey to play the piano. Whoa. And I said, I've never been called St. Francis of Assisi and a monkey in the same conversation. <laughs> so that's kind of how I was welcomed to, to this particular group. But I did learn a lot. Um, but I, I, I think I, I really was the mistake that I made. And I, did, I do try to describe it fairly clearly. You also talk about uh, being invited by Leslie Stahl to, for an interview on 60 Minutes after in a newspaper headline uh, referred to you with the question, war criminal or role model? Yeah. That must well, be Well, I tell you something that I think most people don't know. I was at the UN um, and uh, I was an instructed ambassador, by the way. And what happened was that it was right after the Gulf War and the ceasefire was translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. And my instructions were to make sure that the sanctions stayed on. So, and they were very wide ranging sanctions, general, the toughest sanctions that we've had on any country. We learned a lot of lessons from that. But um, one of the things that I think the public doesn't know is you go on a program like that and you don't know what the, what's called the B-roll is ahead of when you speak. And all of a sudden there were these terrible news about uh, people suffering as a result of what we had done. And I'm trying to explain how the whole thing worked and um, not getting very far in terms of how the whole process of the sanctions works. 
And Leslie then asked me, did I think it was worth the life of, at that stage at 500,000 children? And I thought I had answered everything that it was not our fault, but I, I did. And I think, I don't know whether anybody has ever not said something stupid that they wish they hadn't said. I so wish I hadn't said what I said, that it was okay. It's the stupidest thing I ever said. I have apologized for it. I can't tell you how many times, but there is some kind of a cottage industry that wants to keep it alive. The bottom line is the UN and various people since have said that the numbers were totally incorrect. Um, that didn't happen, uh, but I wish I hadn't said it. And it makes me truly realize that um, you have to think before you speak. I was very struck, Madam Secretary, by particularly one chapter where you talked about the role of religion when it comes to foreign policy and the role religion has played uh, throughout the centuries, actually. One would think that with the role of religion involved, that would sort of temper and soothe uh, foreign policy. It's been just about the opposite, hasn't it? Well, it has. And by the way, you know, I mean, we believe in the separation of church and state. And um, one of the things that I learned when I was secretary was the role that religion was playing in national security policy. Um, and uh, a lot of the things that we were dealing with um, in the Middle East or in Afghanistan. Um, and what I, I didn't think there were, that Americans knew an awful lot about Islam, much less the difference between the Shia and Sunni. And so um, I spent a lot of time um, studying, trying to figure out what, what Islam really was doing. Um, I was the first one to put Muslim holidays on the official calendar. We had iftar dinners, trying to sort out what the role of religion was. And then I did write a book about the role of religion, and I, the mighty and the almighty, because while you may want to separate church and state, there's no question that religion has played a very large role um, in some of the issues that are going on now in the Middle East, for instance, the Shia versus the Sunni, which is really the Arabs versus the Persians, um, or what the Taliban has done um, in Afghanistan. And, and I do think it means understanding religion, um, which has also played a role in the Balkans. Uh, July 11th was the anniversary um, of what had happened in Srebrenica when the Serbs, who are uh, Orthodox, um, they really, there was a slaughtering of the Muslims that lived uh, in Srebrenica. And so as I was getting more and more involved in, in national security policy, it was very clear to me that religion played a very large part, and it was important to understand the basis of some of the struggles that uh, are going on. Clearly, your Czech heritage plays a very large role, too, in your life and in your story, your life story. Uh, and if there's one individual that comes across maybe number one in your book that influenced you or impressed you, it's Václav Havel. For sure, you know, really amazing because, well, I, I, the Czech part is very important to me. And um, I grew up, um, well, I am bilingual and, um, and I uh, am very interested in how the country was formed. By the way, the country would not exist if it hadn't been for Woodrow Wilson and the 14 points in self-determination. Um, and so very much identified with the United States um, in terms of the Czechoslovak constitution was modeled on the American one, except that it had equal rights language in it in 1918. 
but I had obviously heard about Václav Havel and read some of his plays. And what happened was that uh, the, I had gone to uh, Czechoslovakia, which it was called, um, in the 80s um, as part of a USIA program. Um, and then later I went as a representing the National Democratic Institute because we wanted to help them after um, the Velvet Revolution. So I am in his office. I had a copy of the book that my father had written, 20th Century Czechoslovakia, and I'm handing it to him. And he says, I know who you are. You're Mrs. Fulbright. And I said, no, I'm Mrs. Albright. <laughs> and so that was the beginning of a great friendship. When he came to the United States, I did the advance work for it. Um, and I spent a lot of time with him over the years. And he truly was one of the most remarkable people I ever met in terms of his humility, his um, philosophical approach, his love of democracy. And then I have been rereading one of his most famous essays, The Power of the Powerless, uh, The Importance of Living in Truth. So um, it was a, uh, a very um, exceptional relationship. And he did an awful lot to kind of resurrect Czechoslovakia's reputation after uh, a lot of time uh, run by the communists. I thought the most powerful part of your book is where you talk about something you had talked about before, I think maybe the last time we were together, is that rather well along in your life, you discover the full story of your Czech heritage, which included the fact that your family was Jewish, and that so many of your direct family members, including three grandparents, I believe, perished in the Holocaust. And, and that led to later the discovery of your grandmother's journal written before she yeah. was sent off to prison, which was just really mind-blowing. I mean, what did that mean to you to discover that journal? Well, the journal, I'll tell you, it, it makes us, my family and me, seem particularly disorganized. What happened was my father died in 1977, and my mother moved um, to Washington at a certain stage after um, she, um, she had scleroderma and couldn't breathe in Colorado. So she said there's more to life than breathing. But anyway, she moved to Washington, and she brought all my father's papers. And then when she died in 1979, um, sorry, 1989, I, um, all the papers, they were brought over to my house. Uh, and I had them in the garage. And I didn't really, my father was working on a book when he died about the Czechoslovak legionnaires. And my mother wanted me to finish it. And I didn't want to do that. And anyway, I did not look in, in these boxes at all. And then I become UN ambassador and secretary of state. And I have security. And they moved into my house and they said, uh, and the garage, and they said, we have to put these boxes somewhere. So I had all these boxes stored in a public storage space. And then in the 2013, 14, I needed something from the storage. And I went there and I started going through the boxes. And all of a sudden, I find this manila envelope and I open it. And there is this journal from my grandmother. And I, I couldn't believe it. And as I began to read it, um, it was like a, a message in a bottle. Uh, and I'm really very glad that they were able to put it in this book because um, she was writing this journal. My parents, we left, we escaped Czechoslovakia when the Nazis marched in. I spent the war 
in England with my parents all through the Blitz. Um, and uh, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I was two years old and we come back to Czechoslovakia and I didn't have any relationship with my grandparents or anything. I didn't know what had happened to them. Um, and so finding this journal and the fact that my, this particular grandmother um, had spent her life there in a little town, Podjebradi, and she, the journal is basically written for my mother to explain what had gone on. Um, and so, uh, and then this is the part, uh, as I found out more and more about her, as a member, I just said, I thought my grandparents were old when they died. Uh, my grandmother was 54 years old when she was uh, killed in uh, a concentration camp. And so I do now know that 26 members of my family died in concentration camps. And uh, three years ago, I took my children and grandchildren to Terezinstadt to show mm. them uh, what it was like. And we dedicated this particular plaque to those who had died. So I did, it was one thing to find out I was Jewish. It was another to find out how many members of my family had died in, um, as a result of um, the Holocaust. Uh, and it seems, I know the journal was written to your mother. It seems reading it that it was, that she was speaking to you. Well, it is kind of cross-generational and very interesting, which is why I do kind of talk about it as a message in a bottle, because despite what was going on, she had so much hope. That was the part that I found so inspiring. You say that the, I think, and it comes across, the central theme of your book seems to me, I'd like to know what you want people to walk, take away from the book, but the message that I got was that we can make a difference if we work together on solving problems. I mean, you, 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 I think the last time we were together at the Hill Center, you used the phrase, see something, say something, do something. Right. That's always the third part, which some people leave out. No, I do think that it's very important. Uh, I also say very clearly, it took me a long time to find my voice. And so I'm not gonna be quiet now. And I really do think that what is important about democracy is our resiliency and our capability of working together. The other part that is a lesson now, and really, even though the book was written before um, all of this, uh, the whole virus that's going on, is that my parents during the war had no control over where the bombs fell. The only thing they had control over was their behavior. We now don't have control over how the virus began uh, but we do have control over our behavior. And our behavior does involve working together to solve a problem uh, and how we attack the issues and how we show our innovative capabilities and our resiliency. So you're still an optimist? I, I am. You know, I was just uh, asked to, it was at a dinner, I was asked to describe myself in six words. Worried optimist? <laughs> problem solver, grateful American. And that does describe how I feel. I think that's pretty damn good, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you can wear that badge with honor. But speaking of wearing with honor, do I see a V pin you're wearing today? Yes. And I'll tell you what this is about. I was actually going to wear a devil when uh, this book started. <laughs> uh, but this came up for the following reason. What happened was that uh, my father, when we were in London during the war, 
he worked with the government in exile and he broadcast over BBC. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I listened to BBC when I was a little girl. I actually thought he was in the radio. <laughs> Every BBC broadcast began with a kettle drum, which are the first five notes of Beethoven's fifth, da 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 dum, which in Morse code is V for victory. And so I thought it made sense to wear it. Bravo. Yeah. I never, I didn't know that at all. Yep. That's, that's, that, and that, and certainly, um, the people listening to the BBC realized what the BBC message yeah. the BBC was sending at the time, right? I, yes, I think so. I believe so. Again, the book of Madeleine Albright, Secretary Albright, Hell and Other Destinations, a 21st century uh, memoir. Uh, the second memoir, more to follow probably for sure, <laughs> as her very interesting and active life uh, continues. And with that, we thank you for listening. And Secretary Albright, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, always, for a great conversation. You're a great friend. Thanks so much, Madam Secretary. And that's it for this podcast with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. And that's it for 2020. <laughs> Goodbye, good riddance. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being with us all through the year for the Bill Press Podcast. Now, stay strong, stay safe, stay healthy, and Happy New Year. Think of this. 2021 has to be a lot better than 2020. We'll see you next year.